Romans 1. Romans 1. We're going to kind of continue where we took uh, left off last week. Romans 1, you can take a look at Ephesians 6 as well. Just going to touch on Ephesians 6, touch on it at the beginning, allude to it at the end, but primarily Romans 1 this morning. Last week we began to consider the importance of developing a Christian worldview, the importance of developing a Christian or a biblical worldview. That is, as believers, it is incumbent upon us to recognize that Scripture offers to us a cohesive, coherent, all-encompassing framework through which we can understand all of life. That is purpose, identity, meaning. It can all be understood through the lens of the Word of God. This is essential because, as we said last week, all around us at any at, at all times is raging spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, he's writing this to a city that is idolatrous, that is immoral. And we know that the worship of idols is actually the worship of demons. There's spiritual warfare here. Put on the whole armor of God, he says, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so although we may become fixated upon earthly battles, as we see the fruit or the evidence of spiritual war, we have to recognize that behind that opposition, behind that hostility, behind that immorality, behind that rebellion against God, there is spiritual warfare. Spiritual rulers, cosmic powers, spiritual forces in heavenly places. So these forces are always persistently, relentlessly at work. And in what areas do we see primarily the evidence of this aggression? We'll look at verse 14 of Ephesians 6. It says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The primary realms in which we see evidence of the spiritual war are in the realms of truth and righteousness. Interestingly, Satan, the adversary, is described by Jesus as the father of lies. He opposes truth, and John tells us that those who practice unrighteousness are of their father, the devil. Lies, unrighteousness, against truth and righteousness. So question, do you see evidence of this in our culture? Do you see, looking at the culture, evidence of the spread of falsehood and unrighteousness? Do you see evidence of uh, an abundance of lies and immorality? Truth and righteousness are linked because our behavior naturally flows from what we believe. If mankind, in his depravity, wishes to justify his immorality, which he does, he must first attack the idea of objective truth. He has to do away with the idea of an objective, transcendent morality. Once truth is relativized, so is morality. If you can have your own truth and I can have my own truth, then we can also have our own morality and justify whatever behavior we want. So the battle takes place in the realm of truth and righteousness. This is why Paul, again, we're going to get to Romans in a second, but touch on it here. This is why Paul, in describing the deterioration of human society, says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. 
and their foolish heart was darkened. And so it starts with the mind, truth, thinking, and then it shows evidence then in the heart's desires. Foolish hearts, futile thinking leads to foolish hearts. Untruth leads to immorality. So there is a spiritual war. A spiritual war against God, which takes place primarily in the arena of truth, the fallout of which is seen in the realm of righteousness, behavior, morality. And again, that's what we see in Romans 1. The truth is suppressed in what? What does Paul say? Remember from last week? The truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. The truth is suppressed by a rebellious culture so that they can indulge in their fleshly passions. If this is true that there's a spiritual war raging over truth, uh, then where would we expect to see that battle take place primarily? Well, where would it be its most intense? We would see the battle primarily where there is an exchange of ideas, where ideas are taught and propagated. That's where you would see this battle taking place. So where do we see it? Well, we prayed this morning about the school system. Think about the media including the internet, think about the government, uh, and even the church to a certain degree. Powerful institutions which propagate truth. And, and so these are the battlegrounds. These are the arenas of war when it comes to this spiritual battle. So what is our experience today? Have you recognized how the school system seems to become the tip of the spear in the current sexual revolution? Children are being taught that their meaning and purpose and identity are almost entirely defined by their sexuality. And this is even being taught to prepubescent children. A rainbow cult has captured the institution as relentless in in indoctrinating kids. First, though, however, went the idea of a transcendent God. With the idea of a transcendent God went the concept of objective truth. And with the concept of objective truth... uh, and that godless relativism uh, came an encouragement to develop your own truth and own reality and therefore your own morality. And all of this, strangely, in the realm of children, seems to be focused upon sex and sexuality. Concepts of personal identity have become sexualized so that children are learned that they're wholly defined by their sexuality and their sexuality can be whatever they choose it to be. That's the school system. The media as well propagates the same godless immorality. Consequently, the culture is is continually bombarded uh, with falsehood and the encouragement to sin and immorality. And then comes along the government, godless government, that capitalizes on this cultural moment and even passes legislation to enshrine this immorality into law. Consequently, not only is disagreement with the new morality and the new gods of the culture categorized as hate, but dissent now is actually made a crime. What started as a request for toleration has become a demand for celebration. And not just celebration, but a compulsion to participation. You must confess the new truth. You must adopt the new morality. You must pledge allegiance to the new cultural gods. That describes our current moment. We, however, are Christians. And we can't do that. We can't confess the new truth. We can't adopt the new morality. We cannot confess the new cultural gods. As Christians, we are to understand that all of this, simply the evidence of a greater spiritual war, greater spiritual battle taking place behind the scenes, to embrace these things that the culture has so embraced and is seeking to push upon us, would be tantamount to 
to what? Well, to, to renouncing Christ. It would be tantamount, tantamount to rebelling against God. We can't do that. If we align ourselves with the culture who oppose God, then we simply we're aligning ourselves with those who, Romans 1 says, are deserving of God's wrath. To adopt the cultural worldview would be tantamount to rebelling against God and renouncing Christ. So as Christians this morning, our worldview must be shaped by God's truth, including God's assessment of the culture all around us. And that's what we see in Romans 1. So let's read it again. Romans 1, starting in verse 15. Again, Paul writing to Rome. Rome, idolatrous, immoral, pagan, A lot of parallels to our current cultural moment. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Believers are those who have embraced the truth of the gospel, who have recognized their own unrighteousness and their need for salvation through Jesus. The unbelieving culture, on the other hand, has rejected God in the gospel in order to indulge in their own unrighteousness. Although all of creation, according to Paul, clearly testifies to the reality that there is an intelligent creator, man suppresses that truth, and he has a vested interest in doing so. He has a vested interest in embracing convoluted alternative explanations as to how it all came to be, because in explaining away a creator, he frees himself from any obligation to live as an accountable creature. To allow a divine foot in the door is to forfeit his status as an autonomous free agent. To acknowledge God would be to accept God's assessment of man, of himself, 
It would require man to admit that he's a sinner, a rebel, and in need of salvation. It would be to take himself off the throne of his life and to submit to God as Lord, as King, as ultimate authority. The truth of God must be suppressed at all costs. Otherwise, man suddenly becomes accountable. Now, whether God is acknowledged or not doesn't change the fact that all will answer to him. Romans 1 verse 20 says that man is without excuse. Verse 18 indicates that all of mankind, those who are rebels, will experience the wrath of God. So the culture in Paul's day in Rome, the culture in our day, rejects the notion of God and therefore God's assessment of man and consequently the need for Jesus in the gospel. In addition to the eternal consequences of such rebellion, look in verse 21, and you see that there are also present-day consequences as well. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. A rejection of God results in futile thinking and foolish hearts. Vain, worthless, Vain, worthless, philosophical systems driven by godless desire. Rebels pontificating about life and reality, but never arriving at the truth. Paul describes such people in 2 Timothy. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, but are we in the last days? Yes, we are. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power, avoid such people. And he says this, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Sounds a lot like Romans 1. Saying pleasure is their God. So they devise philosophies, they invent moralities which satisfy their basis instincts. Not only this, but in doing so, they lead others astray to follow their own passions. And then verse 7 of 2 Timothy says, always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Yeah, the culture has its intellectuals, sure. But for all their learning, they can never arrive at the truth. Why? Because their a priori commitment is that there is no God. Starting from that poison foundation, they could never arrive at the truth. Any system that denies the reality of God can never arrive at the truth, but only suppresses the truth. The more they claim that the rejection of God is driven by wisdom, the more they betray their own foolishness. Look in verse 22 of Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools. So, our culture is suffering the natural consequences of their suppression of the truth about God's existence. The dominant philosophies and dominant moralities which flow from those are corrupt. Mankind is arrogant. Mankind is defiant, determined that they've reasoned God out of existence with their superior intellect. They're blinded by their own hubris, all the while parading around, the Bible says, as fools. So the absurdity that we see, and I mean, if you pay attention, it's absurd. Right? I mean, we're in a culture that cannot define woman, right? Cannot define a woman. Uh, cannot define a man. It's absolute absurd. You hear stories about children identifying as animals in the school system, right? Uh, and, uh, schools uh, putting litter boxes in their, 
in their uh, schools. Uh, absolute absurdity. Professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools. The absurdity we see unfolding all around us is a natural consequence of a culture which has denied the clear evidence of God's existence. You reject God, you reject truth, and foolishness ensues, and that's what's happening all around us. In all of this, the culture has made a devastating exchange. Look at verse 23 and 25 of Romans 1. It says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Now, whether man wants to admit it or not, we have been made by God to worship. The rejection of God then doesn't result in the absence of worship. It simply results in the a presence of perverted worship. He exchanges the worship of God for the worship of something else. And so if you're not going to worship a supernatural creator, what is left, your commitment to materialism means that you're going to worship something in creation. He loves and serves the material. He gives his time and his treasure and his allegiance to things on earth. He shapes his philosophies and his values and his morals according to human wisdom instead of the divine. He worships the creature rather than the creator. We see this in our culture's obsession with materialism and individualism. We're going to worship stuff and we're going to worship self. In doing so, he's no better than an ancient Near Eastern idol worshiper. There's further consequences, however. There's further consequences to that rebellion, further consequences to that suppression of truth and perverted worship. We're going to see this verse 24 through 28. Namely, there is a divine giving over in which God judges a culture by allowing them to persist in their sin and to reap whatever natural built-in consequences uh, ensue. Look in verse 24 of Romans 1. Therefore, God responding to the stubborn rebellion of the culture, to their suppression of truth, to the rebellion, to the perverted worship, therefore God gave them up. Gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up, there's the phrase again, to dishonorable passions. And it goes on to describe homosexuality. Therefore, because man suppressed the truth, because they rejected the clear revelation of God's eternal power and divine nature in all of creation, And because they did not honor God as God, and because they exchanged the immortal creator for some other God replacement in creation, therefore, God gave them up. And what does it say in verse 24? Gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. This is a judgment that says you don't want God, you want self. You simply, and this is what's going to be stunning, is all of this is done ultimately simply to fulfill sexual passions, and we see that playing out in our culture as well. But if that's what you want, is simply the impurity of your heart, then have at it. Have at it. Since you are so stubbornly rebellious and so determined to indulge in impurity, since your heart is so set on sin instead of me, then have at it and reap all the natural consequences of it. God gave them up. This is a judgment, God giving up, giving up a people to the impurity of their own heart because there are both natural and eternal consequences to this. Since God is the creator and the author of life, since he is the architect of all of creation, his law governs creation. Living according to God's design 
brings blessing. Living in violation of God's design brings disorder and chaos and consequence. When a culture recognizes God in his law and lives according to it, blessing ensues. When a culture denies God and lives according to its own law and his own morality, again, chaos ensues. And sometimes in God's judgment, he simply gives a culture over to that cultural and moral and spiritual chaos. And guess, and guess in what realm that godless chaos is most expressed. I mean, when mankind rejects God and rejects transcendent, transcendent God and absolute truth and so on, where do we see the evidence of that the most intensely expressed? Well, this is such a condemnation of man. In all of our uh, determination that we are enlightened and that we have superior intellects and in our human wisdom, that's what's led us to reject God and so on. Verse 24 through 28 shows us the ultimate reason why behind it all. You know what it is? It's sex. And you say, no, that's too simplistic. Look at the culture, right? The rainbow flag, the trans flag, the rainbow crosswalk, right? Uh, uh, the hate crime legislation, all of this is all designed to push and to protect and uh, to indoctrinate when it comes to sex and sexuality. It's really that simple. It says there in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Mankind saying we reject the spiritual and so we're just going to live in the flesh. We reject the supernatural, and so we're just going to live as animals uh, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then the description of this, it starts with lesbianism. For their women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. Homosexuality, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That is saying exactly what you think it's saying. Homosexuality. And so uh, a culture which gives up the supernatural, which denies and suppresses the truth of the existence of God, does so. Why? because they have unbridled passions and they're driven to satisfy all their basic, basest uh, fleshly instincts, which manifests itself at some point in homosexuality. Now, let's not get on a high horse and judge the culture when it comes to sexual sin, uh, because we as Christians can say, well, we don't do any of that. Well, okay, but there's a whole list of other sins that are also here in Romans 1, and a lot of those things you can look at and say, oh, guilty, 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 guilty. And so let's be careful there, but let's also take a biblical assessment of the culture and say, yes, everything we're seeing around us makes perfect sense when we consider God's assessment of man. The rejection of God and suppression of the truth naturally leads to these consequences, and so... God's assessment of mankind and culture in Romans 1 is incredibly relevant and proves to be perfectly accurate even in our day. And so, Paul points out, as evidence of God's turning over in man's lustful and pure heart, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. There is an undeniable connection between spiritual rebellion and sexual revolution. Spiritual rebellion and sexual 
revolution. And that's a sad indictment of mankind, that much of the rejection of God is for the sole purpose of attaining freedom to engage in sexual promiscuity. Instead of seeking spiritual life and engaging in the highest form of spiritual activity by worshiping the Creator, he chooses instead to cater to his basis instincts and to serve his body instead. He exchanges the eternal for the temporary, the spiritual for the material, and he seeks fleeting pleasure instead of eternal joy. It affords him too much dignity to say that man has become animalistic because at least animals follow God's design for nature, whereas verse 26 says that mankind is behaving contrary to nature. These are what Paul calls dishonorable passions, which results in the dishonoring of the body, verse 24. Since mankind are made as God's image bearers, human life is sacred. There's a sanctity and dignity to human life by virtue of the fact that we are made to be imagers of God. Consequently, human life is to be honored, and our very bodies are to be possessed with honor and dignity. It honors God when we determine to exercise our sexuality according to God's design. One biological male married to one biological female, uh, keeping the expression of their sexuality within the marriage bond, is honoring to God and is honoring of our own bodies. Anything else is dishonoring to both. And so Paul says that God gave them over to dishonorable passions. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passions of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God. And there, we'll just point out again, if you think that our day and the immorality all around us is some unique development that the Scripture had no knowledge of, we'll think again. Because Romans 1 was written to a Roman culture, uh, and also Paul's letter to the Thessalonians here as well. All surrounding the church was a Gentile culture which was indulging in sexual immorality, and so the church was always being called out of that sexual immorality to adopt a biblical sexual ethic. 1 Corinthians 6.13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Then verse 18 of the same passage, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so this is, these are dishonorable passions, dishonoring your own body and dishonoring God. And again, the kinds of sexual immorality, verse 26, 27, and though it's not limited to this when you look at the balance of Scripture, but Paul specifically uh, looks at rampant homosexuality. And notice it says there in verse 27, the men likewise gave up naturally, natural relations with women and were consumed with passion, passioned one for another. Here God defines heterosexuality as that which is natural. You might hear people out there lamenting the, the idea that ours is a heteronormative culture. We need to do away with heteronormalcy. This idea that being straight and being heterosexual is normal and that everything else is deviant. And so we're not going to talk about being gay and straight anymore. We're going to talk about uh, you, what? You could be transgender. You could also be cisgender. And so then being cisgender or being straight uh, is just one other option out there instead of being the standard of normalcy. Well, God says otherwise, and he defines heterosexuality 
one man with one woman, biological male with one biological woman, married for life as that which is consistent with his design for nature. And anything deviating from that is unnatural. He defines what is natural to us, and we do not. And notice that this is transcendent, and this is objective, and so it's not left up to every individual to define for themselves what their nature is. And so don't really care what your pronouns are because God defines what your pronouns are. He defines what nature is, uh, what is natural and what is not. And so it's not left up to us objectively to define ourselves. And that's that worship of individualism. Homosexuality, according to God, is unnatural and shameless, he says, the product of a worldview which first suppresses the truth about God. And notice what it says there in verse 27. But notice also, by the way, if you're uncomfortable right now, it's because you are in some part a product of our culture. But notice also that it says at the end of verse 27, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What he's saying is that when we sin against our bodies, dishonor our bodies and dishonor God through our sexuality, there will be natural consequences. The due penalty for their error. There are natural consequences to that sin. When you violate God's design for sexuality, and by the way, uh, since we're already kind of in the weeds here, might be getting ourselves in trouble, let's just go a little bit further and say... uh, God's design, as much as we want to get on a high horse and judge the culture for homosexuality, sex outside of marriage is also a violation of God's design as well. When we violate God's design for sexuality, there are built-in consequences. We are affected emotionally and mentally and physically and morally and spiritually. We can't dishonor our own bodies through sin and not suffer natural consequences. There's a natural and commensurate consequence to sexual sin And in God's judgment, sometimes he just gives a people over to it. This is God's universe, which means that such perversity does not come without consequence. By by behaving contrary to nature, we overthrow God's intended created order and bring upon ourselves a chain reaction of serious ills. And you wonder, what has happened to our culture? Well, there's an explanation for you. Sin never happens in isolation, but always produces reverberations which have a degenerate effect on an individual, and then the cumulative effect is on a generation at large. So today we're experiencing the consequences of man's rejection of God. We are experiencing the consequences of man's establishment of idol-based worldviews. These consequences are clearly seen as our society seems wholly given over to dishonorable passions and the devaluing of human life and dignity. And so what our passage in Romans 1 is telling us is that God is not sitting idly by as mankind rejects him and suppresses the truth and replaces him with other things, but has actually given them over as an act of judgment to follow their lusts to their sinful ends and to experience the consequences of it. And you say, well, when is God going to judge this immorality? Well, understand that the rampant spread of this immorality is evidence of God's judgment. Uh, He's been active in working long before uh, it even occurred to you. This is the evidence of God giving over a God-rejecting culture to the dishonorable passions. Now look what it says next in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So dishonorable passions and a debased mind. And then you have that long list 
of sins. And that's why I say, hey, you know what? You might need some help getting down off that high horse because as we are judging uh, the homosexual for their sexual sin, well, wait a second here, strife, boastfulness, right? Faithlessness, gossips, slanderers. Now, all of a sudden, this gets very personal. He says that he gives up a culture to a debased mind, worthless, rejected, reprobate in the reason, and understanding, and intellect. A culture which is incapable of thinking straight regarding God and morality. Consequently, they're given over to and filled with a host of evil and unrighteousness. God sometimes removes his restraining hand and allows mankind to be blinded by their own hard-heartedness. So what do we see all around us? Paul says, covetousness, unreasonable greed or desire for that which one is not entitled to, malice, a disposition to injure, to injury and revenge with a desire to cause harm to others, filled with maliciousness, that is, we must exact revenge against every perceived ill. There's no mercy, no grace, no forgiveness. He says envy, jealousy towards others, ill will towards others due to a sense of injustice because one feels they deserve to have what others have or to be what they uh, to be what those others are. And that explains uh, some of the extreme social justice movement that explains what we might call cultural Marxism and so on. He says murder, taking of human life, murder in the streets, murder at Planned Parenthood, Godless men having no regard for the sanctity of life, the spread of euthanasia, and so on. Strife, quick to engage in contention, quarreling and debate. Deceit, prone to lying, deceiving, misleading others. Gossip, slanderers, willing to accuse others and to engage in character assassination. Haters of God, not simply atheists. Somebody said, I don't know where this quote's from, uh, but the two tenets of atheism is God does not exist and we hate him, right? Uh, Haters of God, not simply unbelief but almost an evangelistic rejection of God uh, born out of hatred. Insolent, full of insult and disrespect towards others. Haughty, boastful, proud, arrogant, and vocal about it. And then he says inventors of evil. Ephesians 4.19 says they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So much so that our culture becomes inventive in its depravity. They, they, must, they, they must be inventive because sin never satisfies. And so in indulging in sin, we must always up the ante and come up with new and inventive ways to express our depravity, some new form of sin in order to recapture that high uh, which comes through rebellion. And then he gets really practical and says, disobedient to parents. Rejection of authority. That rejection of authority in the home results in rejection of authority out there, which leads to anarchy. Foolishness, without understanding, he says, faithless, Heartless, lack of care, lack of empathy, lack of compassion, ruthless, no mercy. People who are malevolent. What a damning indictment of a culture that has rejected God, but what an accurate indictment of a culture which has rejected God. Verse 32, it says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so we kind of all throw in together and say, you know what? I might not participate in your brand of sin, but I'll be your ally. 
As you can see, we are experiencing the natural consequences of a society which has denied the existence of God, suppressed his truth, replaced him with a creation-based idol, and has used their freedom from God to indulge in all sorts of wickedness, expressing itself largely in the sexual realm, but then also with a series of other ills as well. We are experiencing the fallout of godless worldviews. We are experiencing the repercussions of trying to live in God's universe according to our own rules. So, what then is necessary? We as believers must recognize and continue to remind ourselves that this is God's universe. We are his creation. He's made all things to function according to his design. Beyond this, he has communicated to us via both general revelation and creation, special revelation in the word of God. He has given us the blueprint by which we are to live in this world. He has given us everything we need to know how to live according to his design and therefore how to experience life as he has intended it. Our responsibility is to embrace his revelation as total truth and to to base our entire worldview upon that truth. We must embrace the scripture as God's revelation to man and therefore the source from which we can develop an all-encompassing, cohesive, internally consistent, logically coherent worldview, which includes an understanding of the nature and existence of God, the nature of the universe, the nature of mankind, the nature of truth, and how we can know truth, provides for us the basis for human ethics, gives us uh, an understanding of the spiritual condition of mankind, including our need for salvation, the identity of Jesus Christ, how to attain redemption through him. Also, it gives us an understanding of the nature of the afterlife and what God requires uh, from us when it comes to preparing ourselves for that afterlife. Each of those things I've just listed also then have many tentacles which reach out into very practical considerations of life. On one hand, we must be so thoroughly familiar with this all-encompassing worldview. We must be so thoroughly familiar with that all-encompassing worldview that we are able to detect error and be able to detect ideas which flow from competing worldviews and reject them. And so we are not those who are just tossed about with every wind of doctrine, but as ideas come down the pike and the culture is embracing some new thought, some new philosophy, we, being so familiar with the truth, ought to be able to filter those things out. We must recognize that all of this is a matter of worship and obedience, uh, worship and obedience, and that we are those who are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. As important as all of that is, we must also recognize that all those practical outworkings that we see in the culture are actually the product of spiritual warfare. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So again, as we witness the consequences and repercussions of the culture's rejection of God, uh, we don't go to battle with physical or earthly weapons. We don't try to change the culture via legislation or political action or civil revolts. Instead, we look to our own spiritual lives. First of all, according to Paul in Ephesians 6, we strengthen our conviction in the truth. This is how you go to war. This is how you engage in spiritual battle. You strengthen your conviction in the truth. Remember that belt of truth in Ephesians 6. You devote yourself to the lives of righteousness, that breastplate of righteousness, Ephesians 6. You live in the confidence that we have peace with God, that is, those feet shod with the gospel of peace. 
You continually exercise faith in the face of fear and doubt. That's that shield of faith. And we learn to wield the truth of the Word of God. And in it all, we give ourselves a watchful prayer. That's the armor of God. So, so we take care of that first, right? So that's how we uh, face this spiritual warfare. But do we have any means by which we can address the culture and its wickedness? Do we just say, okay, I'm going to take care of my spiritual life. I'm going to hunker down and hold on and uh, just wait for Christ to return. Do we have any means by which we can, because I said that we're not going to use earthly means. Politics are fine. They're helpful. Sure, legislation, okay. But those are not our primary weapons, legislation, political action, or civil revolt. So how do we then uh, address the culture? Take care of our own spiritual lives first, Ephesians 6. But look at Romans 1, verse 15. What's Paul's answer? How does he engage a Roman culture which has rejected God and uh, replaced God with idols and given themselves over to sexual promiscuity and homosexuality? How does he address it? Verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. There's the cosmic powers, there's satanic powers driving the culture, but he says this is the power of God. What is it? It's the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Just as Paul is eager to preach the gospel in a pagan, immoral, idolatrous Rome, so we ought to be eager to preach the gospel to our culture. Why? Because it is the power of God. It is the power of God. And you say, well, wait a second. Uh, there's this political leader that I think that once he gets into office, uh, he's going to be able to harness the culture and he's going to be able to stem the tide and turn things around. Well, good luck with that. But you know where the power of God is, is in the gospel. Is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes without exception. And you say, well, that sounds too simplistic. You say that sounds a little bit like a fool's errand to, to take on a culture just with the gospel, that sounds, some might even say, a little foolish. If you think that way, then good, because you're beginning to understand God's means to reach a godless culture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You could turn there if you want. We're almost done here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, the culture high on its own wisdom, supposed wisdom, rejects the wisdom of God. Since that's the case, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because the culture has rejected God in the name of their own wisdom, God has chosen to provide salvation in a way which confounds all human wisdom. Those who are high on their own wisdom will naturally miss that and call it foolishness. In this way, man condemns himself by his own arrogance. 
If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, will you humbly confess that you are a a sinner? Humbly confess that you are a sinner. In doing so, what you're doing is saying, Lord, I accept your assessment of mankind as, as contained in your word. Will you confess that you are a sinner in need of salvation? Will you renounce your own wisdom? Will you submit to God's wisdom? Will you give up your determination to live for yourself according to your own rules and confess that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord? God created you for His glory. He's calling you to be reconciled to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, being God in the flesh, lived a perfect life. He gave Himself on the cross as our substitute to bear the penalty due our sin. He rose from the dead three days later. Today, He's exalted at the right hand of God. Do you believe this? Pray to the Lord, express your faith in Jesus. You could even do it in this moment. That's how this spiritual war is fought. Not with anger, not with vitriol, not with rebellion. One soul at a time being added to the kingdom of God via the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How do you storm the gates of hell? Work to see the church built. And in all of this, we're reminded in conclusion of Paul's words to Timothy. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. And listen, and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Through the gentle testimony of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, what happens is we actually rescue some from the culture, out from that spiritual warfare, and bring them over out of darkness into light. And this happens one soul at a time as we're faithful, engaging the culture with the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we just pray that you'll help us to develop a biblical worldview wholly shaped by Scripture. Help us as Christians to look at our own lives and see areas in which we are guilty of uh, embracing a cultural ethic and a cultural morality and cultural values. Maybe there's areas in which we've allowed that to creep in unknowingly. Help us to have a worldview fully shaped by your word. Help us. Uh, It seems that many who call themselves Christians have a history of... uh, becoming hyper-judgmental and critical in an arrogant way and sometimes hypocritical way, uh, condemning the culture uh, for their sin instead of graciously extending the gospel to the culture. So help us, on one hand, to recognize sin where we see sin, to recognize rebellion where we see rebellion, to reject it, but also to recognize that the culture is captive to a certain degree, captive by their own hearts, their own lust, their own impurity, but also captive in a spiritual war. And so help us to have compassion and empathy, uh, even in addressing those who uh, are engaged in out-and-out rebellion against you and even hostility towards us. Uh, So, Lord, grant us that grace to be able to be patient in such a way. And then help us to have our own house in order. Help us to love you with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. Help us to love one another and help us to be thoroughly familiar, convicted, and determined to uphold your uh, worldview as given to us in Scripture and help us to educate our children in it 
uh, as we see the culture seeking to indoctrinate them as well. So Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ who rescues sinners, Jesus who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light, Jesus that leads us to turn from idols to serve the living God. And so we thank you that you're continually rescuing men and women uh, from the spiritual warfare, calling them to be your own and doing this through Jesus. We thank you for all of this in his name. Amen.